I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Welcome to this podcast, which is an abridged version of the television interview that I did with Davina McCall as part of my In Conversation series for W. This podcast is brought to you by UKTV Play, the free on-demand service. Tonight, I'm going to be in conversation with an award-winning television presenter who has been ever-present on our screens, including 10 years hosting Big Brother. She's also raised millions of pounds with her amazing Sport Relief Challenge in 2014. Tonight, I'm going to be in conversation with Davina McCall. Because I just love spending time with you. It's a, it's a great excuse for doing it. Do you know, it was like when you called up, well, I don't know, you know, I don't suppose you'd fancy coming on my show. Yes. Yes. Of course. I was a bit worried, though. Why? Because I thought, oh, my God, if it's John and I know him really well, am I going to get lulled into this really kind of warm, cosy, we're in your front room, divulging my deepest, darkest, innermost secrets? And I thought, oh, I'll sort it. It'll be fine. Well, there you go. It'll that, be that, fine. That's a good way of starting. <laughs> to be honest, what I wanted to ask you, I didn't realise there was a decision that you made that you wanted to be a television presenter. It's such an well, odd job. No, no. Very few people do. Well, I think because of my upbringing, and I guess if you had, haven't got or didn't have abandonment issues, you wouldn't really get this, but I just wanted to be famous. So I wanted to be famous so that my mum would kind of realise that I was worth something. Yeah. I think that was kind of where it all stemmed from, and I can only kind of be honest about that now, because I would have probably lied about that when I was younger, but I think at the core of it, that's where, how it started. But I wanted to be a singer. I loved music, so when I was 15, 16, 17, I just wanted to sing, but I wasn't good enough. And my boyfriend at the time, who was in a band, he said, you shouldn't be a singer, you should be on telly. You'd be really funny on telly. And I was, was so that, insulted was that, was that and upset. Was that way of telling you you You're rubbish, <laughs> yeah. I think, effectively, that's what he was trying to do. But it can only come from somebody who knows you really well, that kind of yeah. insult, because I was really floored by that, because that, singing was my passion. Music is my passion. Yeah. And um, at the time, uh, I was working at Models One as a model agent on the men's desk. When you said you were working there, you were a booker. I was a booker. So you weren't modelling, you were and, oh, assessing no. <laughs> male models. Yeah, I was assessing male models. Oh, yeah, it was a terrible job. And I, I started when I was 19, so you can imagine me at 19, like an overexcited puppy in a, in a toy shop. I was like that. <laughs> <laughs> um, and because of that because I worked in fashion, I got asked to help out, you know, getting models and fashion people down to clubs. So I started running clubs as well, sort of next to the, next to the booking. And through running the clubs, MTV approached us and they said, look, we're going to launch MTV Europe. And we've got a load of celebrities and singers and bands. Um, the party's being held in Amsterdam and we need somebody to entertain them from Victoria train station 
to Amsterdam. And I was like, and you're going to pay me? They're like, yeah. I was like, are you serious? <laughs> this is like the best job ever. So I dressed up as a cleaning lady with like loads of other mates of mine. About seven of us did it. <clears throat> we all dressed up as characters. I had lipstick on my teeth and support tights on and a sort of tea trolley with champagne in it. And we just got everybody really, really drunk. And we had forms that you could fill out on the plane to Amsterdam, uh, join the Mile High Club and who you'd like to join with and what seat they were sitting in. I mean, it was so out of control. And after that night, I thought, I have to work for MTV. And then I had a focus and I just went like that. So you had a focus. You decided yeah. that you wanted to work for MTV. Yeah. On, on that trip, I thought I'm going to get one person from MTV's phone number and I'm going to start stalking them. And so I, d I did do that and um, I just started annoying them. You know, hi, can I talk to you? Can I bring in a showreel? Can I do this? What should I do? And I spent three years kind of annoying them, but actually those were the last three years of my using. Yeah. And so my drinking and my drugging and my clubbing and it was all slightly careering out of control. So I wasn't a street drug addict. I didn't um, steal to pay for my habit. I worked really hard, but all the, what was important to me was that nobody knew that I was taking loads of drugs. Yeah. So on the outside, I wanted everybody to think that I was fine, but on the inside, it was getting harder and harder to maintain this veneer of okayness. And then I finally, I got clean. Um, 24 years ago and six months after I got clean, I get a phone call from MTV after three years of being passed from person to person because yeah. I was so annoying. They finally said, all right, please just come in and just do a screen test. And I got to MTV and I thought, you know, like, I'm like an excitable puppy. Oh, absolutely. And I'm like, well, imagine that then with three years of pent-up kind of wanting. But during those three years, as you said, they also overlapped the worst period of your drug use and, and your, your addiction. To be able to maintain a focus as well, was that kind of, I don't know... Well, really... I think that was part of me trying to pretend that I was still OK. I, 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 oh, I haven't got a problem with drugs. I'm really focused. Yeah. I, I want to go and get this job. Or I remember I went to um, a Narcotics Anonymous meeting about a year before I got clean, and I remember sitting in the meeting, and I was, te I was terrible. I mean, I was, I was probably high sat in the meeting. But I looked at everybody and went, oh, look at poor them. Oh, look at horrible druggies over there. Yeah. I was just as bad as they were, but I just wasn't ready. I wasn't in the right space. But to me, it was all about the facade. And the minute that all started caving in, and the more I was trying to keep up this facade and inside was toxic and crumbling and dirty, the more I hated myself. I thought, I'm such a fake. Look at me. I am becoming the person that I promised myself I'd never become. But anyone who, who's addictive and, and anyone who's an addict, there's always a point where you're losing people along the way to, oh, well, for the addiction to... to persist i'd lost i'd lost all the good people yeah um and there was one person left and she was the one that said to me in the end that we're all talking about you you think you've got this kind of mask up and you're kidding us all but you're not we all know that you're a junkie and we all know you're taking heroin and we all know that you're you know you're lying to us the whole time and actually i'm not going to stand around and watch it anymore she yeah. said i've ha i've had enough and She'd been so there for me the whole time. I just thought she was going to be the one constant. And when she said, that's it, I was devastated. Of course, I swore at her a lot and got out of the car, slammed the door. <laughs> um, 
but I got inside the flat. I was I was sleeping on a camp bed, and my dad sort of my dad had this like walk-in cupboard where his clothes were, and he'd put this camp bed up in there for me to sleep in. And uh, I walked, sat down on the camp bed, and I thought, look at me, look at me. What's going? I'm lying to everybody. My one last remaining friend, who's reliable and normal, has gone. What? Where? Where am I going now? I'm either going way down, or I've got to pick myself up and get out. And I woke up the next morning, and I felt so sick and just dirty. And I thought, right, that's it. I'm going to have a shower. And I called somebody that I'd met that was in recovery, who I still know now. And um, I said. I don't suppose there's a meeting today. And she went, oh, yeah, like she'd been waiting for the phone call. Oh, it's you, yes. Been waiting for that. Um, and I went to a meeting that evening and I took Sarah some flowers at lunchtime and we both cried a lot. And I said, I'm an idiot and I have been lying. And that felt like the first step of honesty. Yeah. And that time I sat in the meeting and I looked at them all and I went, I'm just like you. I'm in the right place. Well... What do you think the drugs were giving you? What was missing? What was the... Oh, my God. What was the thing yeah. that made you carry on when you kept on thinking this is possibly wrong? It was like having uh, a box in my chest and um, security and safeness and safety uh, was like sand and the bottom of the box was a sieve and it didn't matter how much security or safeness or love or anything I put in there, it would just keep going through. But drugs kind of filled it just for a moment. Yeah. And that's why when the drugs started wearing off, I'd think, oh, they're wearing off, I've got to get some more. Like, I was terrified of the, that box emptying out. But the drug of choice that you had at the time was heroin. And I don't know, because I've never taken heroin, but anyone I've ever spoke to who does says what, what it does is just numbs everything. Have you ever had an operation where you've had a pre-med or any kind of pain relief yeah. after? There's kind of a pain relief where you can take it where you don't really care about anything. Like, it's not even that you're numb. It's like everything's OK. Yeah. Everything's OK. And when you do have this kind of whole... That feeling of it's all going to be okay and it's like heroin gives gives you that hug that you feel like you need, yeah. that's incredibly addictive. And people now look at me and they think, I can't imagine you like that, that's so no, weird. No. But that was me and I've done a lot of work myself, tirelessly powering through self-improvement of various sorts. Um, and I feel in a really good place now, but... I was in a real mess back then. You mentioned your grandmother, uh, Pippi, who was massively important to you because she, so she, she brought yeah. you up effectively, yeah. didn't she? Yeah, so I went to her when I was three yeah. because my mum and dad got divorced and um, my grandparents were made... I was made a ward of court or something like that and, that and that meant that I went to live with my granny. And even though at the time I didn't know that I was going to stay with my granny because my mum had said she was going on holiday... Yeah. and that she was going to come back and get me. But, I mean, I, I like to think of it that she didn't know how to say, you're going to live here. It's a terrible thing to have a t to tell a little girl or a little child. So she said she was coming back and she didn't. But my granny, just don't talk about it <laughs> and she'll forget that her mum's not come back. She'll just forget about it. And obviously I didn't forget because it was my mum and I, I didn't know where she'd gone and what was happening. And so that kind of formed the whole I think. Yeah, but, but Pippi was the all-cooking, 
all singing, all dancing, stuff and nonsense, original girl power could do anything a man could do with belt on um, woman. She was just amazing, still is amazing. And I owe her everything because, you know, I didn't have a conventional upbringing and my mum was eclectic and exciting and irreverent and unstable, exciting to everybody else, not great as a mother, but Pippi was the roots. And she when your mum left, because your, your mum was French, yeah. she, she went back to France, didn't yes, she? So it Paris. wasn't she like, lived in Paris. left and I'll nip over at the weekend. She no. went and was gone. But I did see her in the holidays, so every... Yeah three months or so, I'd, get, I'd be out in Paris. And I very quickly realised that I couldn't tell anybody, I could, definitely couldn't come home and tell my granny what was going on in Paris because they would either not believe me or they would be upset and maybe stop me from seeing my mum because mm. it was this weird thing of even though she was bonkers, it was quite fun. Then I'd come back and be all the good, God-fearing little yeah. granddaughter to my granny. It's quite Be weird. Because your mum had had, had your, your old sister when she was 16 or so. Yeah, actually, she? it was my it was my mum and her first sort of boyfriend. So my mum was 15 when she got pregnant with my elder sister. So she missed out on a youth to an extent. Yeah, well, my mum missed out on a youth and she basically grew up. My sister also was given to my mum's parents in Paris, so she lived with her grandparents too, but my mum was dipping in and out of her life a lot more because she was in Paris. And so she had a lot more of a troubled life than I did, really, because yeah. I had Pippi. You had stability. Yeah. Because your mum was and an alcoholic. Dad. Yeah. Um, and was that recognised at that time? Not really. She was really very beautiful. I came to learn later on in life that she was anorexic, but it was the 60s, and she was kind of yeah. poker thin, shorter skirts... Um, her parents were very wealthy and rather than giving her time and love, they threw money at her, which she thought was amazing, but actually it made her not have any kind of empathy yeah. or be able to feel or she just spunked tons of money and drove sports cars and dressed in Yves Saint Laurent until the money ran out. And, and then um, she had to have a hysterectomy when she was really young and started drinking after that and the drugs and everything... So about when I was about five or six, that that all happened, and she just really lost it then. And um, we'd have periods of when she was trying to be sober, or she'd go out with a guy, and he'd help her a bit, and then she'd start again. Or it was kind of dipping in and out. But generally speaking, it was absolute chaos. And you stayed with Pippi till you were thirty, and then yeah. moved to London. Yeah. To be with your dad and your stepmom. Yeah. This podcast is sponsored by UK TV Play, the free on-demand service, where you can watch the TV shows you love from Dave, Yesterday, Really and Drama, wherever you want, whenever you want. The home of BAFTA-nominated series Taskmaster and the critically acclaimed Red Dwarf, alongside other UK TV Play exclusive including The White Princess and Most Haunted. UK TV Play offers free access to thousands of hours of comedy, drama, documentaries and paranormal TV, all for free. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me, because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates, like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com people today.
When you make decisions for your company, you look for the no-brainers. And if you have a lot of mailing to do, Stamps.com is the ultimate no-brainer. It streamlines your processes to make your business more efficient, which makes you less busy. Mail checks, invoices, legal documents, and everything you need to keep your business running with Stamps.com. Seamlessly connect with every major marketplace and shopping cart. Schedule package pickups and see your cheapest and fastest shipping options from different carriers. With rates up to 89% off USPS and UPS rates. And with the Stamps.com mobile app, you can take care of mailing and shipping wherever you are. Make the same no-brainer decision as over 1 million other businesses with Stamps.com. Sign up with code PROGRAM for a 4-week trial, plus free postage and a free digital scale. No long-term commitments or contracts. That's stamps.com. Code program. So all through your childhood, you've had a home base in the UK mm-hmm. that seems solid and secure and, and, and safe. And then you've had this commitment to go over to France. Was there ever times where you were thinking, I just don't want to go because when I go over there, I've, I've lost my security? Well, firstly, my sister was there and I hero worship my sister. And so whenever I went out there, I was, I was with her and she was my solid person out there. But secondly, I loved the fact that I was courting the chaos already. It's mm. only now with these kind of adult eyes that I can look back and sort of think, God, that was, I shouldn't have been doing that. I shouldn't have been allowed to do that. I should have been looked after or well, nurtured When you say do that, what were you just going out? What, 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 what was it oh, that you I mean, I, I wrote about it in my book, actually, but I, my mum took me to a sex shop when I was 13. My mum liked having sex like the loudest sex you've ever heard in your entire life and in the afternoon in my sister's bedroom where we have to sit outside, you know, or just weird, mad stuff. How did that inform your way of parenting then? I mean, the first um, with Holly, I look back now at Holly and I thought I was quite a laid-back mum and, you know, really cool and everything. When I had Tilly, I was like, God, I was so neurotic with Holly, poor... Poor little Holly, you know, as sort of a Nazi with um, sleep times and she's got to eat now and she's got to have then and we can't possibly go out to the pub for lunch because she's got to go back to sleep at two till four. Um, I was so rigid with myself and with her and everything because I wanted to be perfect and I wanted to give them the most solid, stable upbringing Mm. imaginable. And I wanted to give them everything that I didn't have. So, well, that I did have with Pippi. So I wanted to recreate what I had with Pippi, but 24-7. Did becoming a mother fill the hole? Um, You know what, I think possibly I would have thought that it might fill the hole, but it didn't because I'd already filled it. I mean, or I was on my journey to filling it. I was doing it myself. But what it has done for me is made me realise how healing it is for me to be able to do lots of things with my kids that I know really hurt me. Yeah. And as you became an adult, how did your relationship with your mum develop? Particularly in your worst oh, bits, when you, were at, when you were at the bottom and you needed help, was it your dad who provided yeah. help yeah. and your mum just ignored it or...? Well, I think my mum, my mum was pretty much in it. Yeah. So I, I wouldn't turn to my mum for help because she'd be like, well, have another drink, you'll be fine. But my dad was amazing. But with my relationship with my mum, in the end, when I got clean and sober and I realised that basically by ignoring all of her behaviours, I was sort of just enabling her by not yeah. saying anything, which all of us would pretend, you know, we'd all just be reading her mood and just trying to pretend that it was all fine. And in the end, 
I said, look, I know what's happening. I basically did what Sarah did for me to yeah. my mum and said, get, get clean and sober. And she did. And then we built, we tried to build bridges. And then I met Matthew and I thought, Mike, she's sober, let's get her down to the wedding. It's going to be amazing. And she came to the wedding and it was amazing. And um, she came, I, I, we met, went to meet her in Paris for the honeymoon and it was like really fun. And we went out for dinner. And then six months later on my birthday, Matthew took me out to Scotland for the night for my birthday. And the next morning on my actual birthday, there was um, a newspaper article and it said, uh, Mummy, I need a meeting. And she'd sold a story to the papers about uh, me going to NA and going with her to an NA meeting. And I'd never talked about going to NA because it's anonymous. And mm. they'd intimated that I was on the verge of relapse when that was so far from the truth. I was, I'd never been happier and I felt so devastated. All these bridges that I'd tried to build with her just had gone in one fell swoop. And my big sister, Caroline, was living in our house in London with us. She never spoke to her again, ever, from that minute. No. no, which I thought was so sad. And I kept trying to build bridges, so I went back for the next sort of 15 years trying to build bridges until she died. And Matthew kept saying, you've got to stop going back and expect something different. Yeah. It's going to be the same. And he could see it, and everybody else around me could see it. But I kept thinking, no, this time's, this time's really different. And it never really was. And I went away for my husband's brother's wedding with Caroline. And my mum passed away when we were at the wedding. And we just looked at each other, and we had a big hug, and we cried. And Caroline looked at me and sort of said, I feel a bit relieved, is that terrible? Yeah. And I said, I don't think it's terrible. I said, I understand what you're saying. I think I feel a bit relieved because, not because she's died, and that's not at all what I mean. It was terrible that she died and she died so young. But I was relieved that I could stop trying to get her to be something that she wasn't, that finally I was kind of released to just love her for the mad, passionate woman that she was, that everybody else loved, you know. Yeah. Everybody else could see that, but I just... Well, everyone else can have the fun because mm. they don't need the love, do they? Mm. Exactly. That's exactly it. Caroline's was massively important to you. Yeah. Again, I, I, you spoke to me about it yourself and, and it came very, very strongly out in your book. When she passed on, the hole that you referred into before in terms of inside, you know, that's the kind of hole that can't be filled, isn't it? I don't want it to be either. Yeah. I, I'd never want that. I mean, you can't, you know, and I, and I, my sister was always so insecure and so full of self-loathing and she was so damaged which made me want to love and nurture her and care for her even more because she didn't have a pippy. Yeah. And um, I wanted to be her pippy because she'd been so amazing for me when I was a little girl that I'd go out to Paris and I'd be subjected to quite a lot of madness, but she was always there with a cuddle. Like, if she knew that I was sitting on your show mm -hmm. talking to you, who she really fancied, um, <laughs> about her like she like the fact she'd just be like what Bishop said my name like she'd be freaking out like the brouhaha that you know happened after she'd passed like how many people talked about how much they loved her and i just it's a it's a bloody tragedy isn't it that people never hear the love no. um that they have until they're gone and you think why aren't they here to enjoy like this outpouring as a woman and as a mother uh, you've got this public persona and you, it, it must affect uh, how your family functions. But there must be a point where you go, look, when I close that door, yeah, I'm, I'm your not, mum now. Yeah, no, but I don't even need to say it. The other day, 
I got up in the morning, I went to a class and then I got back, had a very quick shower, got in the car, went and filmed Long Lost Family, then got back home, walked through the door until he went, here's the chemistry book, right, come on, like, come in the kitchen, oh, yeah. sat down, that was it, 45 minutes, we did a massive blitz. Nobody says, how was your day? Did you change someone's life yeah, today? Because yeah. really, they just need their they chemistry need, revision yeah. done. Uh, I wouldn't change it for the world, and I love school runs. I'm so, because I don't get to do them every day, they are the most precious thing. I probably do morning school runs maybe two or three times a week, and it is my most favourite experience the chit-chat in the morning and the chit-chat coming home as well is really good because you get the day's gossip. I, those are my most precious, precious moments. I love it. Your sport relief challenge. And the challenge that you took on was going 500 miles from Edinburgh to London under your own steam. So cycling, running, swimming, going over, over Scarfell, going over mountains in February in the worst weather they could biblical. pick. And, and then swimming with the mirror, mile and a half swim in like nearly freezing water. It was absolutely epic. And I know, I know it affected you mm. massively because... Do you know it wasn't physical? It wasn't a physical... Yeah. I didn't want to let anyone down. And you know that's what I'm like, right? That I will do anything to not let people down because I want to be, I think maybe because there's like part of me when I was using, I was so unreliable and undependable. And one of the things that I really hated about myself was that nobody could rely on, I was just, I just hated myself as, as you know. And so it was really important to me in recovery that if I say I'm gonna do something, then I do it. If I'm gonna be somewhere on time, I'm there. If I, if I commit to something, I want to, it makes me feel bad if I don't. But physically, I, rep I repaired myself pretty quickly. I mean, I was trained brilliantly and I made quite a good recovery. I know you didn't have quite the same experience, yeah. but I, I, I was really lucky and I kind of bounced back physically. But mentally, it stayed with me for ages, that feeling of I could not stop crying. I mean, I was empty. I've never been like that, ever. I mean, you have a team around you, Dr. Physio, Matt, the doctor, Greg, and then you have this wider body of people, and then you have the public, and then you have, I guess, all of this pressure, and you've done the field visit where you'd gone to the quarry and oh saw the God. children breaking stones, yeah. so there's and a it's... huge motivation for you to do it. And I, I, I fully appreciate what, what you say, because when I did mine, I came back, and no-one knows until you've done it. And I remember being in, in the BBC, and I bumped into David Williams and everyone was asking me, how's your leg? Because I'd had a leg injury. And he was the first person and the only person who said, how's your head? Because yeah. he'd done his challenges, swimming the Thames, swimming the Channel. And he just said, how's your head? And I said, it's just a fuzz. And with you, I remember being in Cardiff on tour and it was the October, nine months after you'd done it and you phoned me up and just said, I've just had to stop the car. I couldn't stop crying. It's quite mad, isn't it? And but then what, what, what do you think? I don't know. Do you think all that all that's necessarily born out of sadness? Because potentially, well, what maybe you've done... unlocked something. Yeah. Well, I didn't have any defences left to keep it down. So all my life, maybe I've been like putting a lid on everything, and I had no more lid left. Like the lid had been lifted, and it was just all coming out. Remember in the sixties, they used to give people LSD to try and. Um, clear their heads with psychotics and yeah. sort of help them overcome issues. Well, it felt like 
after my challenge, it felt like that. Somebody lifted the lid off my brain. I just vomited tears everywhere. And then I put the lid back on. But it was, it took me a long time. And you and David are the only people that I would really talk to about it because I think you're the only people that, that get it. But I, I just hadn't, I hadn't bartered on feeling so unhinged during that process and, and the time that it would take me to process that and put it down. Well, it's a nice thing to have done, though, isn't it? Oh, I mean, I'm so glad. I, did you find it hysterical when you'd finished that and I was still walking like John Wayne and people go, what's your next challenge? Yeah. And you're like, I'm actually not going to answer that. Partia, um, Partia immediately thinks, yeah, I'll do something else. No, and I then, didn't and have then... that. I did not have that. I was like, I am never doing anything ever again yeah. until this year. No, I'm doing the Great North Run in September. Oh, yeah. I mean, that'll be fun. That'll be, be great. Fun. That's, that's, yeah. that's something you can do for fun, trying yes. to do something on that exactly. level. Difference. Exactly. And there is that little bit as well where you think, you know, all Bono does is sing a song. <laughs> <laughs> do you know what I mean? We go yeah. through all this. When we get guests on, we ask them to bring a photograph. Oh, yes. That's important to them. This is this the photograph that you've brought. I feel a bit bad because my stepmom, Gabby's not in there and she is like top babe. So I'm just saying, Gabby, I love you very much. Um, but this is a picture of my dad, who's my rock, and my little sister, Millie. And what's quite difficult, I think, um, or I, I feel bad about sometimes, is that I talk a lot about Caroline's death, um, and it's what people want to talk to me about because they know it was a big part of my life. And she was amazing, and she taught me how not to fear death anymore. And so that was a big experience. But I have got another sister, and she's 13 years younger than me, and that's what she looks like. She's an amazing girl. She lives in Australia. Thank God for FaceTime. And uh, she's got a little baby boy called Bunker. What a great name, right? Bunker <laughs> Hall. For, for an Aussie uh, for, banker. Yeah, banker. Um, <laughs> and um, she and her husband live out in Australia, but she is brilliant. I love her so much, and I think I probably don't give her enough kudos, so it was important for me to have this moment to say that is my kid sister, and she's very special to me. But my dad is my rock. He has Alzheimer's, and he was properly diagnosed um, Red Nose Day a couple of years ago. And we knew for two or three years before that he had dementia. And we've talked a little bit recently about how does he feel about me talking about it. And just recently he's decided with my stepmom that we're going to talk about it a lot. And he has astounded every single person that's come to assess him for his Alzheimer's. You know, yes, it's getting worse and his short-term memory is much worse than it was a couple of years ago, but his positive mental attitude, they said, is absolutely key in him dealing with his illness. So he tells everybody, hi, I'm Andrew, I've got Alzheimer's. It's like the second thing that he says. And they sort of like almost were saying we should make him a poster boy for Alzheimer's because he's not letting it rule his life. He is still Andrew, he's still out there, he's still having a good time. He's had a diagnosis that would stop a lot of people in their tracks and make them want to give up on life, but he hasn't let it do that. And he's such an inspiration, and I hope with anybody else that gets this terrible, terribly frightening diagnosis yeah. and really terrifying, if you, you know, God, if you Google Alzheimer's, it's just darkness, you know, it's terrible. But I look at my dad and I see such hope and um, such positivity and each hurdle will cross when we get to it. But um, so he's a real inspiration and I hope he can be for other people too. It's a funny way of summing 
things up because the words that you've just said about your dad, I could easily say about you. You do bring lightness and positivity and joy and love. And uh, I think we all I just... Feel like I'm gonna, I feel like I've been through the ringer. This is absolutely devastating, this programme. I'm going to have to go into the toilet in a minute and just go and, like, <laughs> literally sob my guts out again. <laughs> I don't know. You've brought all this stuff up. I'm going to have to go home and process this for at least two hours on the way home. Like, oh, my God. But not in a bad way. No, in a lovely way. I love you. It's been like having a conversation with a mate. But it's but just it quite... Is. That's what it know, is. But... It's like quite one way, for basically, but, but you know... But it, I've learned a couple of things about you, but... Um... Yeah, well, no, but the one thing mean. you can learn about me is I love you more now oh. than I did before. Oh, my God. Ladies, that's been a great conversation, oh. hasn't it, Davina? Thank, Thank you. you. This podcast was brought to you by UK TV Play, the free on-demand service. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com slash style for free shipping and 365-day returns.